It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's often said that family is forever. But what do you do when a member of your family commits a faithless act against you? Clay Chabot joined the Navy as an operations specialist in 1981 and was honorably discharged two years later after being hit by a drunk driver. Clay soon moved to Texas with his then-wife and the couple had a baby boy. But not even two years into his new life with his family, everything would be ripped away from him. Upon experiencing the ultimate betrayal by his brother-in-law, Clay was robbed of his freedom and spent over two decades of his life in prison for a crime he did not commit. This is Clay's story. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Clay Chabot was failed by the justice system of the very country he served. In 1986, one of Clay's friends, Gayla Crosby, was found murdered in her home. Bound and gagged, she had been raped and shot three times. Although there was no credible evidence present, Clay became a suspect in the investigation. Knowing that his brother-in-law, Gerald Pabst, was present at the victim's home earlier that day, Clay agreed to be interviewed by the police and shared the truth. However, Pabst told police a different story. During the trial, Pabst testified against Clay and placed all the blame on him. Clay was wrongly convicted of the rape and murder of Gayla, and Pabst pled guilty to a misdemeanor theft charge. Clay spent over 20 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Pabst spent 30 days in jail. Throughout his incarceration, Clay maintained his innocence. Decades into his prison sentence, the Innocence Project got involved. Through DNA testing of Gayla's rape kit, the nonprofit was able to help prove Clay's innocence, as well as Pabst's role in the crimes. In 2008, Pabst was finally convicted of the murder of Gayla Crosby. In 2010, Clay took a plea agreement with a sentence of time served. The agreement guaranteed that he could never be re-prosecuted for the crime at hand. At last, he was finally free. Clay Chabot joins me now with the story of his wrongful conviction and subsequent freedom, and he shares what justice means to him all these years later. I, uh come from a, a background. My parents split up when I was pretty young, about eight years old, and my father was a truck driver, and my mother went on a different relationship. But anyway, so I was pretty much on my own from about age 15, and uh, my dad did the best he could um, provide for us, because we had you, four brothers and three sisters. But anyway, uh, a few of them were older now. But anyway, so uh, at about 15, I started wandering around the country, just a few psychotics, California, and just trying to find myself, I guess. And uh, one married out there for a short time. Anyway, on that divorce, uh, I decided to go back home to Ohio and I joined the military. 
And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, and uh, I was in the service for about three years. Uh, worked at a rate that, you know, rather not speak of, but anyway, yeah, it was good. And uh, I wound up getting run over by a hit run drunk driver in Florida on my motorcycle. Um, so uh, medically discharged, went back to Ohio and uh, met my, uh, let's see, second wife. And, uh, and uh, wound up in uh, Texas to stop and visit her mother. But one week turned into two and two weeks turned into two months and that turned into two years. Um, so, uh, and then my wife got pregnant and, uh, five months after, uh, he was born, her brother, who also lived nearby, um, I associated with quite a bit. Um, and I, you know, I'll, I'll readily admit that I was in a bad lifestyle. Uh, but, uh, he came over one night and hung out and he left early in the morning and, uh, said he was going to meet a friend of ours. Actually, you know, we'd been doing drugs all night and he wanted more than he could afford it. So I told him, no, I told him, man, you know, stuff I got is trash. If you want something, you'll have to find somewhere else. So he called a friend of mine, ours, and I thought he'd made an agreement to go over and meet the guy because he left. I just wanted to leave. It was like five o'clock in the morning. I was tired. Um, and actually I'd been up the night before that too. So I was beat. Anyway, um, he left and I passed out and, uh, some hours later, it was knocked at the door, and he came to the front door. And uh, at the time, you know, I didn't know anything. I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I said, come on in. He said, no, no, no. He said, man, look, I just came to bring this back. And he handed uh, me my wife's pistol, small twenty-five caliber. But I got her when I was driving a tow truck for the police department because I was gone all the time. And in the middle of the night, when he heard my truck pull out, people knew I was gone. We lived in an area where there were several rapes in this park complex. So I bought this gun for protection. Anyway, unbeknownst to me, he had taken it, but he says, you know, I just, I just wanted to bring this back. I said, what are you doing with this? He said, I borrowed this morning out of Sandy's purse. And I said, what? And I looked, there was no clip in it. And so I asked him, where's the clip? He said, oh, yeah, and he reached in his pocket and pulled it out and gave it to me. Well, I knew I kept it loaded for my wife. It was a type of gun that was, had three safety features on it, so I wasn't worried about her having it in her purse to reach in. Get. Anyway, so I, I knew it was loaded. And I said, what happened to the bullets? He said, oh, man. He said, things got crazy over there. So I threw the bullets out and drove off. I said, what? I said, man, come in here. Tell me the rest of the story. And he comes in and tells me the story about how he went over to our friend's house and uh, that he pulled up and he saw another car park in the driveway. Um, and these two guys get out, went into the house and he said, they, and then he heard, he heard uh, gunshots. So he got scared and left. I said, what? Man, I'm still half asleep. I'm thinking, you know, this guy's been up all night and he might be just on a speed trip. I don't know what to make of this. And anyway, so he leaves and he goes home. Apartment's down. And uh, I, my wife wakes up. She's sleeping on the couch and take care of the baby, whatever. And uh, so sometime later that afternoon, I was supposed to meet my friend that evening because we are going to do another deal. And um, uh, I remember before even that I was in the kitchen, breakfast bar, and the TV was on. And I remember hearing it like you replayed after you hear it, the newscast saying, woman found dead, shot, you know, her name is Gaelic Crosby. Well, I didn't recognize her last name because my friend's name was Doug Graham, and they lived together. I thought they were married. In any event, but my wife knew because they, we hung out together. I'm telling you, we, we hung out all the time. We played poker just a few nights earlier at his house late in the evening, um, you know, for Christmas together, parties. And anyway, so and my wife starts screaming, that's Gaelic, that's Gaelic. 
And that's when I replayed it in my head. I said, what? So they announced that house, you know, husband came home, found the wife dead in the, in the house. And, and so I'm kind of freaking out. And uh, I don't know what to do. This is a shock. I've never had anything like this in my life. So, so um, I think, I think I can't remember. I think the first thing I tried to do is call Doug's house, call my buddy Doug. Because we're, we rode together. We're brothers. And uh, somebody strange answered the phone. And I just found that, found that very peculiar. And the way they answered, and then I said, hey, you got know, this duck? No, no, duck, duck. what do you want? I was like, well, so I hung up. So then I drove down to my brother-in-law's apartment and uh, said, hey, man, listen. I said, I'm supposed to go over to see Doug tonight, man. I said, you want to ride over there with me? He said, no, 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 man. I don't want to go anywhere near that place. Now I start getting really freaked. I don't, you know, what? I said, what? You don't know. So I, I went back to my apartment and... uh uh, I think I wound up did reaching Doug. Maybe it was the next day. But in any event, um, you know, it's just so hard for me to conceive that he may have had something to do with it, right? And I mean, I'm married to his. How do you turn somebody in for that? And then, so, but I still wasn't sure. You know, I had all reason. I mean, I just didn't want to believe it. Didn't want to believe it. Um, and I think I went home and I told my wife, I said, let's go out and see your mom. And we went out, drove out to Terrell, spent the night with her. And, uh, I did get a hold of Doug and I told him, listen, I think I have some information that could help. I said, my brother-in-law said he was by the morning to meet you. He said, meet me. He said, I told him when he called me, I couldn't meet him. I was going to work. I said, well, yeah, look, all I know is he said, you know, told me he was coming to meet you. I think I have some information I could help. So he told the police, and of course the police, two detectives come to my house and uh, asked me a bunch of questions. They gave me all the information, and they asked me if I still had the gun. I said, yeah. I gave him the gun. They said, do you have any bullets that were in it? I said, yeah, my wife had carpet. Gave us some bullets. They said, would you come down to the police station and make a statement? I said, yeah. And that's starting hard. So I went down there, and I gave a three-page statement. And uh, you know, if you ever had a chance to see, you'd see where I, I'd written in there, look, I don't believe this guy had anything to do with it. I do believe whatever he said. I said, I smelled the gun, didn't observe any powder. But you know, uh, anyway, so based on my statement, they arrested my brother-in-law, Gerald Pabst. They arrested him. They caught him with bloody clothes, stolen merchandise, and pawned tickets from some of the merchandise he had stolen out of my, my brother's house, my Doug's house. Well, this is pretty clear now that something is wrong because... I didn't know this until his wife came running down the house. Hey, the police were just here, arrested Jerry, but what did I find all this out? Well, he tells the police, this detectives, that I borrowed his car, um, that he gave me the uh, merchandise to pawn. And uh, at the time, they didn't have DNA, and the blood on his clothes wasn't enough to do a, a, a sample. So, in any event, so that wasn't very conclusive. So, they wound up, because I looked like Charles Manson, I rode a Harley, I carried guns, I dealt drugs. You know, I got to admit all that. Um, and I created uh, my own persona, which is what contributed to my conviction, um, that, you know, that character that I portrayed. Um, a lot of it was, though, you know, uh, I'll tell you, I've never heard anybody about life. So, and all that persona is what keeps that from happening sometimes. You know what I mean? The bad guy. Look. So, anyway, uh, so he had told them that I gave him all that stuff, so they arrested me, and they let him go. Um, 
So I hired a private detective that found a witness um, that said she thought she saw a car there uh, with two men. Um, and so they wound up eventually arresting, re-arresting Jerry and charging us both. And they came in and told me, Detective Weekly, this guy slammed his hand on the table so many. He said, he said, I don't care if you did it or not, I'll twist it to make it look like you. And that's like God's honest truth. He can lie to it to his deathbed or whatever. But um and uh they just said finally came to the deal and said, Look, if you'll testify against Jerry, we'll let you go. I said, Man, you're asking me to tell you something that's not true. I believed in justice. I had never been to serious show before the bottom of the military. And I thought truth would have prevailed. In the meantime, they gave me a polygraph, and I, I got a minus 19. And if you know anything about them, I think there's two points per question. There's 10 questions. So which means I didn't even pass my name of the date because they take the standard, you know, regulation questions. And in fact, uh, they came to me and said, look, you testify against Jerry, uh, we'll let you go. I said, I can't do that. They asked me to lie. Well, they went to Gerald with the same deal. He got on the stand and said, we were both there. He pulled the trigger. Now, at the time, uh, I guess it's not clear to me at the moment, but um, um, they believe she had been sexually assaulted, but there wasn't enough evidence to um, confirm, you know, which perpetrator of any perpetrator or whatever, I guess, because DNA was way in the future. Um, so uh, sure enough, that's what happened. We got on the, got on the stand and said, we were both there. He pulled the trigger. They let him go. They gave him nothing. Um, so I got a life sentence. I spent, uh, well, I say 24 years because it was 22 years incarcerated and two years out on half million dollar bond, three quarter million dollar bond while I was fighting the last parts of it. But that's way in the future. So, you know, I went to prison and, uh, I fought it the entire time, everything I could, went to law library all the time. And, uh, again, as I say, DNA wasn't even, uh, out then. And I, I'll never forget, uh, I was in the day room one day, and there was a Discovery, I think, magazine, or whatever. When they first came out, they were more scientific. And it was about DNA on the cover. And I grabbed it and started reading it. And uh, I wound up, at that time, it wasn't in the United States yet. I had to write the British consulate to help me get the name of the scientist that discovered it or whatever, or had the advent of it originally in Canada. And at that time, he was just starting to license it to a corporate a lab in New York called Life Coach, I think. Anyway, let me back up and tell you this. The private investigator that I hired, John Rosa of Dallas, Texas. He's done dozens, of, if not hundreds of murder cases, dozens of capital murder cases and every other crime as a private investigator. He's not a big bossman. But uh, he said, I'm one of the few people he ever believed in. And he stayed in touch with me the entire time. And uh, so John, John tried to help me get life goes to do DNA. And I started, then, I, then, then, then the Innocence Project popped on the line, you know, and, and, and coming on, 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 on the forum. So I started contacting them. Of course, everyone else, media, century, ministries, all kinds of organizations. But uh, at the time, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, you know, at the beginning of DNA, you had to have about a quarter size sample to do any kind of testing. And it wasn't until some years later when this guy, I know his story too, a scientist in California, he was on vacation, going up the side of the mountains and had an idea and he discovered how to clone DNA. 
So you could take very minute samples, clone it, and then be able to run the DNA samples. Anyway, so this came a little years later. But uh, so I, I, uh, I kept finding that, and the NASA project originally said, look, we'd like to help, man, but we're at the beginning of our stages, and we need to have cases that are certain and achievable with the limited resource we have. Now they're much, much bigger. But uh, so they deferred me for a long time. And I, you know, I kept fighting the best I could, but for a while I gave up, two, three years. I finally picked the up again and started again. I started fighting. And then Texas, fortunately, I, I hate to give them any credit, but two things. One is Dallas is one of the few cities in the country that held on to evidence almost indefinitely. A lot of cities have where they, they kill it after seven, 10, 12 years. Um, second is uh, the legislation finally passed a law that allowed for people to petition for DNA testing. And I was one of the first ones in. Um, and I got appointed attorney, but a great guy. But uh, just because it was the beginning of it, uh, it took almost five years to process the, uh, the, the uh, procedure to get the DNA testing actually done. And in the meantime, I wrote the Innocence Project again and said, listen, I'm at the end of my line here. You know, I got one last chance, but uh, and I pretty much spelled everything out for him. What evidence there was. Dallas had lied for 12 years telling me that the evidence was lost, stolen, or destroyed. I knew that was wrong. So I wrote the Innocence Project one last letter, and uh, uh, they responded and said, hey, we're going we're to take it off. So they joined with the attorney that had been appointed to be in Dallas, and uh, man from there, once they did the testing, they, you know, they still had fatal scrapings, funny DNA, sorry, <laughs> uh, um, DNA in the palm of the victim's hands, semen. So it all came back to prove this guy had done it. You know, I mean, in every aspect, there was nothing there physically to prove I'd never been. And so, uh, and again, I was at the forefront of it by having a private investigator in Ohio follow this guy to where we you know where he was. And we simply just told the Dallas DA where he was. And once they saw the DNA evidence, they went and arrested him, brought him back to Texas. And uh, I remember the detective later in court or whatever would say that Jerry told him, I'd be before, I'll beat him again. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, they brought him back. And um, at that point, the courts, you know, pulled me back to Dallas. And um, luckily, they had passed a law that said, if DNA testing, you know, proves you may be innocent and you're entitled to a possible retrial, well, you're entitled to a bar. <laughs> when they pulled me back to Dallas, the prosecutor, so I was supposed to be exonerated. Originally, they were going to exonerate me. But in between the time of these proceedings, uh, the new Craig Rock and his Dallas DA came in and he brought in his own team. So that case got shifted to this new team. And once the new team saw it, um, the uh, lead prosecutor, uh, she saw it from a different point of view and just simply believed that somehow or another I was still involved. Even after we'd given this, and this guy had proven to be lying several, so many times. Uh, but anyway, they just came up, they developed a new theory to fit their mindset, well, their perspective, what they thought had happened. And there was just no getting them off it. And there's one of the biggest problems in this country is when people aren't smart enough, they get up to uh, recognize and understand they made a mistake. And you know why that happens? Because they're not big enough to have to consider, if I made this mistake, have I made any others? And that shatters their whole foundation of their professional career. 
you know, I mean, what they believed in and done, you know, the work they've done, all this, because then they have to question it. And that could shake anybody's conscience and soul, you know? So I get it. But in any event, uh, so the prosecutor decided they were just going to retry me. But let me back up, they say this. So I go up there, and they uh, tell me, okay, they're not going to exonerate you. They're going to possibly recharge you. And I go before the uh, uh, judge for a bond hearing, whatever. And she says, yeah, okay, the case needs to be reversed, reviewed. You know? uh, well, what about a bond? Prosecutor screaming, oh, no, no, no. He's got a life sentence for murder. That doesn't qualify under this legislation. She said, that's not how it reads. Oh, she was biting. She said, well, your honor, where is he going to go? My bondsman, all my original attorney, my bondsman, my family was there. <laughs> my bondsman stood up and said, I'll give him a house today. And so the judge says, okay, here Well, your honor, but, you know, he, how's he going to get around? He can't, doesn't have a driver's license. And uh, my sister said, I'll move to Texas today. And she said, well, he doesn't have a car. My brother said, I'll give him a car today. The judge was like, anything else? So they sent me out on a half million dollar bond. And uh, I had somebody saved. Uh, and, but the biggest guy was John Rosen, my private investigator, that old big bondsman in Dallas. He put farm up. So I got on a half million dollar bond. But I was restricted to a house. And I could only move around to the court, you know, with my sister or bondsman. Anyway, that went on for a year. And, you know, the odd thing is, uh, so we need I want to fall into a relationship online with a woman, beautiful And um, wound up to where the courts allowed her to come stay with me for two weeks. Uh, they felt like they had been guys. But anyway, uh, well, I made a mistake of putting pictures on MySpace or something, and the courts uh, uh, got a, a, a subpoena to get my records and saw where I was kissing this girl. And they said I violated the terms and conditions of the bond. Now, I never saw anything that said I wasn't allowed to fall in a relationship or wanted to fall in love or whatever. Anyway, point being, they violated me and sent me back to prison while I was pending the uh, uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals decision on whether or not the case would be officially reversed. So I had to go back to prison for another year or so. Finally, the entire court reversed it. Um, so they called me back to Dallas and uh, went up for another bond. This time, for whatever reason, even though now I'm supposed to be in a position of innocent until proven guilty, because previously it was, you know, I was still under, technically under a murder conviction until the court of criminal appeals says no. So they give me half a million dollar bond on that. But when I come back, I'm supposed to be now more in a neutral position like any other citizen. They raised it to 750000 Just to try to keep me in, keep the pressure on, you know, this thing. And, uh, but you know what? Once again, we made it. So I got out on that bar. And I think I was bound to, uh, under that time, I, I was allowed to uh, move around, but I had to have a monitor. But I could move within the state of Texas. Um, and this went on for about another nine months um, until finally every ruling we had with this judge was in favor of the prosecutor. Um, I may be wrong, but I think he'd check. I believe I'd heard that prosecutor and the judge used to work together in another famous case or some some years ago. I, I, I really don't know what their bend is with me or why they were so adamant on just continuing to pressure, 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 trying to break me. But uh, anyway, in the end, we just come down and said, look, 
you know, sign here today, sign, you know, just to, we'll, we'll give you a plea deal of, of uh, uh, time served, but you have to accept the murder conviction. Or we'll take you right back up to this Dallas courtroom and sit you between, you know, in front of 12 people who, uh, sorry to say this, but are too stupid to get out of jury duty and who have been indoctrinated by the American justice system since childbirth to believe that the American justice system is the best in the world. It's not. And to think that, you know, whatever the prosecutor says is true and the police don't lie, uh, they better wake up because next time it's going to be their sister, their brother, their mother, their father. You know, it's, you know we see this now. But uh, so they broke me. And, uh, you know, the only reason for fighting it any further is this. Look, what, for money? You know, I... I could make money, um, but I wasn't sure I could trust American justice and roll the dice again and go into that courtroom. Um, so I could either sign here today and yeah, accept the murder conviction, time served, I go home, because I can't get it back anyway, no matter what they you know, do. No money replaces 24 years of life, you know. So I just decided to go home. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And you moved to Florida the next day. Can you share can you share about the life that you lead now in Florida and what that looks like for you? Oh, it's been it's been it's been pretty good. See, first off, I'm not gonna let yesterday ruin today or tomorrow, you know? So I can't say I forgot it, but uh, I've done fairly well. Like the girl I connected with in Texas, so I moved here, got up getting married and been together. We were together, we were together for uh, eight years. Um, and uh, got here and I started a small business, remodeling business. And then from there I switched over to, um, Morgan is a maintenance director for a large property managed company. Did that for five years and left that. And then I started a small fire prevention company here in Florida. Where am I? Yeah, it's a small one man, two man operation. But that's sustained me for the last eight years. Things are getting slow. I'm getting old. But uh, yeah, I've done well. Listen, I'll tell you, I've done more than what, 12, 14 years I've been out than most of my people were friends have been out here for 50, 60 years. I've got a beautiful home. Everything else paid for except for the house. <laughs> um, I'm uh, newly married. Uh, my last wife and I, you know, separated. And I got married again three years ago to a wonderful little girl that uh, I tell people all the time, we've never had a fight. We laugh every day. That sounds like heaven. Yeah, well, it gets a little too hot. But I'm not... <laughs> right. You said that the temperature there in Florida gets a little hot. Um, yeah. The story that you shared, you know, I can't imagine um, the best word I can think of is the whiplash, the hope and the despair as you were serving time incarcerated for a crime you didn't commit. Can you share how did you maintain peace? How did you maintain the resolve? You said you gave up for a couple years. What made you get back to writing? What what kept you going and what kept you determined Um, throughout those 22 and 24 years? I don't know. I guess, you know, the, the biggest answer I could give you would be 
sense of humor. Yeah. I had an extreme sarcastic sense of humor, and I just buffered the pain, the suffering through humor, you know, in a way. And then, but the other thing was, I was, I luckily ran into a kid as soon as I got in there that told me, hey, man, listen, they can steal your body, they can't steal your mind. You know, the best thing you can do while you're in here is go to school, go to college. And I did a lot of that. I got several degrees, you know, bachelor's and associates in it. And then, uh, so the education, because that was the one place we could go where, in, in, and a lot of people try to dismiss the education you get in, in prison. No, colleges or local and, and big colleges, well-named colleges, Houston University, don't, came and said, look, if you'll let us come in, teach these guys, man, we'll take care of everything else. As long as you give us a safe place, do it. So that was the one place we could go where we were still treated like humans. So I really enjoyed that. It kept me busy, man. Really expansive perspective of the mind, anyway. But uh, so education, I, I, I went to school almost the entire time I was in there, and uh, I don't know. You just, I just not. I'm, I don't give up. When I know I'm right, and I didn't do it. I knew somehow, somewhere, someplace there. So I think. Uh, Can't remember exactly. I think I picked it back up. I picked it back up um, after Texas passed that law that allowed DNA testing. So, and I can't remember what year that was, but um, probably early 2000s or something. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's, there's no way to convey that. Uh, I tell people. Prison is is ninety percent boredom, punctuated by ten percent uh, sheer stark and terror. So, and uh, many of the things you see and have happened there, you, you don't want to tell the what <laughs> It's crazy. It's a jungle, you know, predator of prey. I mean, sometimes you're forced into doing things that uh, you would never see yourself being able to do without your own survival. So you're the predator of prey. Yeah. Texas is one of the worst prison systems in the country for many, many years. You can look it up. The, uh, they, they were run by building tenors when I first got there. Um, there were very few guards. It was, it was a brutal system. But you follow the rules and did what they told you, and, you know, and then you're okay. Um, so it was more of a physical um, um, impression. Uh, then uh, about going to each other, the legal systems and all that, how we finally got the, the justice system to bring in changes. Then then they brought in more guards. I mean, then it became more of a psychological thing. So, What did it mean to you to have your family stay by your side and know that you were innocent throughout that entire time? Well, let's cover that ground a little bit. There's why. Um, because, you know, after many, many years of, you know, going through the court system and appeals and all that stuff, you know, 10, 12, 15 or so, do you know what cognitive dissonance is? Mm-hmm. So I believe sometimes they come to the, the point of having cognitive dissonance over an emotion and a, and a, and a thought, you know, in mind, um, to where they have to resolve that cognitive dissonance. In some form or fashion, because they've been torn apart and ripped apart and you know, suffering just as I did. Um, so I think uh, some of them, 
you have to wander her down. And, uh, of course, that hurt quite a bit. They never really, they never really expressed it, but I'm sure they had wonder. So to that question, is this so, you know, easily uh, answered clearly? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I hate to say it in a sense, because I don't want to hurt any of them. My hearers see this. But I felt, sorry, I felt like uh, the only person who really never doubted me was my brother, Mr. John Rosa. And to think that it was a non-family member, but then again, they knew me. I, I, I was a crazy kid, you know, out of all my brothers and stuff, man, I was the one that was pretty wild. Um, but you know, it was all in fun. I mean, I did crazy stuff, but it was fun, crazy stuff. Like I said, I didn't really, I never hurt anybody, <laughs> but I was just a little wild. Um, and I traveled a lot, you know, and I stayed stuck around, and motorcycles was just everywhere. So, uh, you know, and, you know, I'd take my brother's car and bring it back a week later. Just, I didn't have a real, but, uh, um, so I could, I could see where they had some, you know, stepping stones of possible wonder and doubt anyway. And, uh, you know, I admit that I was out there on the drugs, but I got to tell you something. I don't care what I, you know, look, there are people who, fly off on that stuff. I, I, I've i always been in control. Rarely have I ever been so drunk that I didn't know where I was. I don't mumble, stumble, bumble, you know, even on drugs. I was usually always controlled. I never got them freaked out that I would do anything beyond the realm of my morals, character, and uh, beliefs, you know? Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime Podcast after this. When I think about you... Um incarcerated during that time and being your own advocate with the help of the private investigator, but essentially on your own, navigating the legal system, which can be complicated and disheartening and cumbersome and confusing while pursuing your multiple degrees. Can you describe for us now your impressions of that system, of that labyrinth and we know that the system um, failed but, you, but then the Innocence Project stepped in. You are right. free, but you have a record that isn't accurate. You have an anvil yeah. around your your neck, proverbially, that is not true. Tell us about yeah. navigating that on your own or, or and whether you feel there's anything, there's anything um, slightly to believe in, in the justice system in your eyes? It's a big, yeah, it's a long question. Let's see if I can remember all of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, if, this is kind of funny thing. I learned, I, like I said, they, they luckily, you know, again, the laws came into work. They provided us the law books. So we'd go there and study in the law library and research our own cases. And, all and of course, I got, you know, live with other people. We had little teams, you know, all researching cases for different purposes and reasons. But I often would just go there and, uh, spend time and I just grab a book, pull it down, crack the case open. And I have to tell you, life is truly stranger than fiction. If some of the cases you read and this stuff are just, you know, it's like it's, a, it's like fiction, but it's a storybook. But um 
and and yeah, it was it was it was uh, legal legalese is uh, almost like Italian or uh, or you got to learn a whole new language, you know, to get into it. But it was kind of fascinating in the same sense, man. I love to learn. Um, so, but um, so far as uh, you, you really begin to get a better understanding and depth of how um, the legal system is stuck in its own policies and bureaucracies. But I, but I also learned at the same time that anytime you want to change something that has such a possible important imperative of, uh, outcome of that change, they can't make it swiftly. That's the very, you know, review, you know, in depth, and then incrementally to see whether or not you're taking the wrong move, the wrong step, you know, by being this new law or whatever the case may be. Otherwise, you wind up causing more, you know, harm than you're trying to do good. But, um, and that's a lot of what the work we use, Trumpic does, or, you know, policies, the legislation, so like that's fantastic. But it's still so, so slow. And uh, in the interim, um, you know, the, the parody point of this whole thing is that when you're getting the wrong people, you're letting the guilty ones go. And the statistics are clearly out there. Dozens, if not hundreds of more murders, rapes, uh, uh, pedophiles. You know, uh, you know, so it's not, sure, you lock that person up and, and, and cause a cancer and effect of his family, but you're causing more of cancer and affect the society by not getting the right guy in the first place. So their focus should really be on changing whatever it may be to take and, and, and ensure that they have the right person. I'll tell you, I've got a couple of reasons that I think that change losses, but they, my, my friends in the legal say it's too radical. One is make it to where the prosecutor, if later the case is found to be you convicted the wrong person, they are subject to the same time that you requested that person to go to prison. Now, I know it sounds radical. And I know they have what they call color of state law immunity. And, uh, but that would make them be, they would use more of their resources, of their unlimited resources, to ensure they got the right guy. And they might make sure they check themselves, hey, well, maybe I shouldn't screen for a life sentence when I'm not real certain. It gives us a percentage odd to the time they could ask for. If they're not real certain, they may only ask for 15 years. You know, so but anyway, I, and the other is, uh, is uh, yeah, I think for all the resources the state has for prosecution should be open to the defense. FBI labs, you know, unlimited funds for private investigators or for investigators. And they're supposed to be doing that anyway, but they don't. <laughs> uh, so, so you can get me back on track. On Can I ask you a question about the Innocence Project? When you were, when the state proposed release in exchange for confirming the murder conviction. Right. Were you under advisement by the Innocence Project at all as to whether to fight that and indeed undergo a second trial? Or no. Well, I can make it clear for you. Bottom line is, no, they, they obviously would, uh, no, would not uh, make that decision for me. But I tell you, they, they said they would, if I decided to go back to trial, they would defend me. But, you know, that, Things like I said, this this judge, we tried to have her accused. Discovery Channel, I guess, had done a sixty. A, uh, they had a new show in Dallas. I think I was on the first half dozen or Dallas DNA or something. And it was all about when they came out because Craig Watkins had put in this uh, 
a new team to investigate claims of innocence. And anyway, so they did this special air, air thing. But anyway, come to find out that, uh, as I understand it, the judge had made some remarks that had already proven that he was biased and against me in the first place. But we tried to get those tapes from Discovery. They were based in England or whatever. We got a speedy. We got the records. But we couldn't get them out of the country. Felt to the uh, outtakes. We wanted the clips that they cut out from his interview. But anyway, uh, so we tried to get him reduced. That didn't work. And by then, we knew, we said, listen, we tried to recuse this guy. We're going to make this bear mad. So that was like on a Friday. Trial started on, was supposed to start on a Monday. He said, hey, we're not doing any more delays, done nothing. And so we were down with the wire of me trying to decide, man, if this guy hasn't ruled in my favor on anything the last nine months, two years, whatever, <laughs> except for the overturning case. Because, by the way, my original judge had to recuse herself because she was friends with the prosecutor. The original prosecutor, uh, Janice Warner, uh, they took her to special bargaining and found that she had violated the law of convicting. She withheld evidence. She knew two witnesses were lying. She was for anyway, This was all covered up in the bar thing. You're not allowed to expose that. Anyway, so we knew we, we made uh, this judge mad. And so it was time to, there was not really going to go back in there with this guy and 12 jurors now. So that's why I decided at the last minute to just take it. He was tough. He was tough, man. Yeah, but the instant project was there. Some other attorneys and Tony Flay, whatever you want to do, we'll do it. But I called my son. Uh, I told you earlier, my son was only five months old when I went to jail. And uh, so now I get out. Like 25 or something. And, uh, you know, I talked about the phone. I said, man, what do you think I should do? He just said, just go home. Do you live near your son now? Are you able to see him? No, actually, um, he, he lives in San Diego. Uh, but I did just see him um, Thanksgiving. He, him and his wife flew into a, uh, North Carolina to meet at my sister's house uh, for Thanksgiving with me. So it's the first time I've seen him since my wedding about three years ago. He lives far away. I've only seen him a few times over the years. But... That sounds wonderful. That sounds like it was a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Do you Do you think about your time incarcerated, do you try not to think about it? What do you, you know, what, what colors your day in terms of your mental well-being? What do you want listeners to know? You know, when I first got out, uh, I thought I had it well contained, you know, buried in a barrel, whatever. Uh, years later, I recognized, you know, those haunting uh, thoughts or memories do arise, but I don't let it control me. Um, I tell you, <laughs> I actually wake up singing most days. My wife laughs at me. She's like, you just snort. You better not mess with you. It's, uh, but I tell you, I, I just, I still use humor um, a great, great, great deal to suppress that. Sometimes I feel like the barrel's getting rusty and the lid's blown off and it does seep out. And I do have some, uh, you know, bad moments at times and sometimes memories and dreams that I can't shake for a day. But uh, for the most part, you know, I'm okay. Um, as far as, uh, you know, I've, I've pretty much said a lot of what I, I think people should know. Wake up. If you get called for jury duty, don't just think you have to accept whatever they tell you. Ask questions. Think about it. Tell them Always consider it as if that, your vote, is if it were somebody you loved. Not just because you want to go home, because it's been a week long or two month long trial or whatever. And, you know, they pay you 40 bucks a day when you're missing 300. 
I mean, just a lot of factors that influence the jury system that are negative upon the uh, accused. Uh, a lot of them would rather walk out and say, you know what, at least I don't. My prosecutor said, if you don't think this man's guilty, you might as well just pick this gun up. She picked up the gun, slammed it on the table, said, put it back in his pocket, let him get back in the elevator with you. Now, what do you think a jury's going to do? <laughs> but anyway, in some cases, that affects. But so our, all I can say is make me smart. You know, whatever you see on TV. Luckily, this stuff has come to light in the last eight, 10 years or so. And I think a lot more people are aware, you know. But again, that's about it. What was the rest of the question? This final question, Mr. Chabot, tell us about your perfect day now. Tell us about when you enjoy the weekend with your wife. What do you love to do? Tell us what movies do you watch? What shows do you go to? What music do you listen to? What hobbies do you have? Tell us us about what joy you have now. Uh, Um... Look, I live in sunny Florida, and right now is the best time of the year because it's not too hot, not too cold. So I love sunshine. I love water. That's why I moved here, and that's why I love I hate the dark. I wish they changed that stupid law that's changed the time zone. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Uh, almost every day with my wife is perfect. <laughs> nice. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I like all kinds of music, so it's hard. It's easy to say what I don't like. I don't like heavy metal or anything. It sounds like taking a bunch of instruments, throwing them down a never-ending staircase. <laughs> but uh, one of my favorite songs that I came back. We go to a lot of go to a lot of concerts and things, shows, movie. But uh, I just saw Jelly Roll, Tampa. Nice. And, uh, I'll get ready to put on my Facebook uh, that song "Save Me." Yeah. It probably explains things best for me at this time, or in the past, maybe. But um. You know, I tell you, I've got I've got a lot of good friends. Uh, all my family have never had a problem, really, any of a major issue. So, um, uh, other than a little concerns about health, my days are pretty good. I'm glad to hear it, Mr. Chabot. You deserve it. You deserve all of it and more. I wish you peace. I wish you good health, and I wish you long days in the sun with your wife and your family and your son. All my best to you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.